Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Detrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Miguel de la Torre and Joshua Bartholomew about the theology of hopelessness. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Joshua Bartholomew. I am an experienced professor of religious and theological studies, uh, currently finishing up my postdoc at Harvard and the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm sitting here with uh, the distinguished uh, Dr. Miguel de la Torre, um, who is a full professor at Iliff School of Theology at the University of Denver. And we will now begin a conversation about his theology of hopelessness. Um, Welcome, Dr. Miguel de la Torre. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's certainly a pleasure and honor to uh, speak with you and interview you and talk with you about your research. Um, to begin, uh, to someone learning about your theology of hopelessness for the first time, how would you explain it to them? Christian thought is very rooted in the idea of hope. As a matter of fact, um, it is one of the gifts of the Spirit. So to embrace hopelessness seems to be counter to the whole Christian idea. Mm. But quite frankly, I have come to discover that hope has been used as a way of domesticating oppressed people. And, and, and maybe probably I could explain how I came to this realization. I took a group of students to Cuernavaca, Mexico, where we went to the squatter villages and we were looking at the horror, the, horror, the horrific way people were living based on the neoliberal economic structures of the world. But afterwards, when we were trying to unpack what we saw, one of my white female students said, um, I know this is horrible, but when I looked at the little girl, I saw the hope in her eye. And at that point, I had an epistemological meltdown. <laughs> Because what she was doing is, as long as there is hope for this little girl, I don't have to do anything. Right. Everything will be taken care of. God will take care of it. So I found that for the dominant white culture, hope becomes a way of not having to deal with the injustices of the world. And for the marginalized community, in this case the Latinx community, it becomes a way of domesticating us. Because as long as I have hope, as long as I think it's going to work out, then if I just keep my head down and I don't make any waves, I might survive. But the reality is I probably won't. I, I'm, 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 I'm influenced by the sign that is over the gates of Auschwitz that says work will set you free. And that hope that I might be set free, that I might lose something like my life, keeps me in check. So if I could help us move to the point of hopelessness, where I realize I have nothing to lose, that's when I become the most dangerous. And that's where revolutionary and radical actions begin to take place. 
how does this understanding of hope or hopelessness in this case differ from other theologians or ethicists who may understand hopelessness as part of Christian doctrine? Um, I think, for example, of theologians like Jurgen Moltmann, who um, within their theology and their theological formulations um, rest upon ideas of the promise of God to love people and uh, always be with creation no matter what. And the idea that, um, you know, all people have to do is, like you said, hope, keep their head down, and wait for the future promise of God to meet them wherever they're at. How would you respond to that? that and that's a good question because the book I wrote, Embracing Hopelessness, really is a response to Yulin Moltmann more mm -hmm. than anyone else. He gives us this theology of hope. And as you said, we can trust in the future because God keeps God's promises. However, what happens when the God of liberation fails to liberate? What happens when God does not keep God's promises? As God failed to keep God's promises to the Jews at Auschwitz, which I just mentioned. Hmm. You know, God promised them. And God did not fulfill God's promise. So in the reality of life, right. how do we deal with this? Now, Moltmann bases his theology of hope on a Hegelian dialectical history, uh, what we like to call salvation history. That is that, um, that, that you know, things are bad, but they're going to get better and better and better, and we're moving in an upward slant until we reach our utopia. And as you know, this is not just a religious concept. Um, you have um, uh, within, um, within economics, mm -hmm. uh, Marxism is a salvation history. Uh, We're going right. to be moving until we wither away the state and we all mm -hmm. live in the communist utopia. Right. And capitalism is a salvation history, that the rising tide will raise all boats. Mm -hmm. um, but in Moltmann's understanding of history as moving upward, um, he says that at the end, you could look back at history, and in all those horrific times, you now could understand what God was doing. The problem is, at the end of history, when I look back, slavery will never make any sense to me. Right. La conquista de Mexico will never make sense to me. Mm -hmm. The uh, oh, Holocaust, Holocaust will never make sense to me. Right. That is a, I think what Moltmann's doing is what many Christian theologians do is that they try to impose order in the chaos of history. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I drank the Foucault Kool-Aid, <laughs> and um, I don't believe history is linear, and I don't believe history is connected. Mm. Um, I think what we do, and I think most historians believe this, is that we look back into history, we find those points in history that we can cite and connect and make an artificial linear line with these different points so that we could justify today what we want to do tomorrow. Wow. Um, if you have that understanding of history, then anyone could go back and, and, and create their own history mm -hmm. to justify a future. Right. So if there really is no history, if there is no linear progression, then that tells us that tomorrow could be fantastic or it could be horrific. Mm. 
we could move to a more utopian just society or we could move to a a, a more horrific mm -hmm. society like another genocide I see. Um, so because we don't know what tomorrow will bring bring mm -hmm. Moltmann's idea of promise and hope falls apart so what I'm trying to do is, how do you do ethics in the midst of the chaos of time, hmm. not knowing what the future will bring? I see. Excellent, excellent. So then, you asked that question, and I think that's a brilliant question. What would you then prescribe as a way to deal with um, conditions of reality, um, given that systemic oppression exists? and uh, it could very well be the case that history is just chaotic. So, as we stand before the vastness of neoliberalism, before the vastness of social structures that are designed specifically to marginalize and oppress those who do not belong to the dominant white culture, what becomes the ethical response? Right. I like to say that right now, we have to go to the police department mm -hmm. to get a permit from the police department to protest the police department <laughs> for police brutality. Right, right. We have domesticated <laughs> protests. Right. Um, I like to say that this is the only country I know where you can drive to a march. <laughs> So we have come to the point in where we have allowed our oppressors to make the laws for us mm. on how we can rebel mm. against the very laws mm. that keep us oppressed. Right, right. So then the question becomes, how do I ethically respond? Right. I can't follow the laws that are designed to keep my oppression checked. So what I developed is what I've been calling an ethics para joren. Now, for those who have not yet learned the language of the angels, allow me to translate joren if I can. Um, and I probably won't because of licensing laws. So um, let's just say it's similar to a certain four-letter English word that begins with F and ends with K. Ah. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, and let me just say that it, it probably means how do we screw mm. with the social structures designed to oppress us? Right. Now, I'm basing this on not something I'm inventing, but something oppressed people have always done. Um, as yourself, an African-American, you know that within your own community, you have uh, Bear Rabbit and Bear Bear. Mm -hmm. These were trickster images in your community that helped understand for African Americans and slavery how to um, outwit the master mm -hmm. who thought the slaves were witless. Mm. Um, within the indigenous community you have um, um, Spido and Coyote mm -hmm. as these trickster images. I'm from the Caribbean. In my community we have Elegua, which is the Afro-Cuban trickster. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know the Mexicans have Cantinfra as an example. Um, so, so within oppressed community, you've always had a trickster image. Right. Um, and what I'm trying to do is to reach into our own communities 
and pull out something we've always been doing, hmm. and that is screwing with the systems in order to survive. Right. Um, I'm reminded by one of my intellectual mentors, Jose Mati, a revolutionary of the late 1800s, who uh, wrote, Nuestro vino de plátano y si sale agrio, sigue siendo nuestro vino. And again, I'll translate, we will make our wine out of plantains, and even if it comes out sour, it's still our wine. Mm. So what I'm trying to do is I'm rejecting all Eurocentric thought, theology, and philosophy mm -hmm. because it is designed to keep us oppressed. Right. When the French cried out, Libité, Igarité, and Franité, it never included their subjects and colonized people in Algiers or Vietnam mm -hmm. or Haiti. Mm -hmm. So when I reject Eurocentric thought, I then turn to my community and I look for the symbols of my community mm -hmm. by which to respond to oppression. For me, the symbols is, is, is the symbols of all oppressed people, and that is a trickster symbol, mm -hmm. and that is screwing with the structures. Because you have to screw with the structures mm -hmm. because you can't necessarily go totally against it because you'll get killed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how, do, how are you wise as serpents but gentle as doves? How can you mess with the system so that you can at least move a little closer to some type of justice? You know, it's interesting because what you're saying makes me reflect upon my own background. Um, and as somebody who did grow up in the United States, I identify with African-American uh, culture and experience. Um, but being born in Trinidad, I now wonder, you know, what are the tricks or symbols that I could probably apply in my thinking? Um, so could you provide a concrete example or a case study, uh, let's say, about um, what um, screwing with the system would look like? So let me give you two examples. Yeah, please. The first example was when I was writing the book, um, Embracing Hopelessness, one of my students at the time who was uh, TAing for me um, um, ended up getting arrested. He was a gang member, mm -hmm. a former gang member, but he got arrested anyway. And um, he took my manuscript with him to prison, mm -hmm. with my permission. Mm -hmm. And among his fellow gang members, they read my manuscript. And what he tells me is that they got it. They understood what I was talking about. And they had a very rich conversation because now that they understood their dilemma, they began to try to wrestle with what to do. Mm -hmm. See, see uh, all too often, in the midst of hopelessness, many times we revert to either escapism mm -hmm. and where we um, may do damaging things to ourselves, whether alcohol abuse or drug abuse. Um, or what we may do is just um, totally not deal with the situation. And by doing so, we many times end up doing damaging things. So we, we, we act out in, in, in non-healthy ways, besides the escapism, but maybe doing crime instead. Mm -hmm. But now, with the, you know, as they were talking, they began to, to, to realize that maybe they can channel that energy to something more revolutionary. Uh, and I'll come back to this because that's exactly what happened in the late 1960s. There was a group, a gang, mem a, a gang group known as the Young Lords, 
Um, and when they were in prison, they got, uh, their consciousness was raised. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'll give you two examples of what they did. Mm -hmm. um, and and just, just for structurally, these are two, uh, A and B from still number one, because I have mm -hmm. another whole example of mm -hmm. immigration mm -hmm. we'll get to. Absolutely. <laughs> So in, 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 in the late 1960s, the young lords, and I'm going to look at the New York, ex, the New York chapter, because right. uh, I'm from New York and I'm familiar with that story um, more because I lived during that time. Mm. The young lords um, went ahead into El Barrio in New York um, and, and, and swept up all the streets and put all the garbage in bags and they put them in a the corner mm -hmm. and they called a sanitation department to come get the bags. But the sanitation department would only show up whenever they felt like it in black and brown neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So they took all those bags, they went to Third Avenue, they built a wall, mm -hmm. and they set the whole thing on fire during rush hour traffic. <laughs> wow, uh, that's Horiendo for me. <laughs> yeah, and 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 and, and I'm basically am using these examples by which to build this this ethical methodology. Right. Um, the police came, beat them up, threw them in jail. But the New York Times started doing stories about the sanitation department. I see. And by raising the consciousness, they began to change the structure. So now the sanitation department picks up the garbage in the barrios every Tuesdays and Fridays. Right. That's what I mean by Joriendo. I see. They did something else, and this now is an indictment of the church. They went to the Primera Iglesia Metrorista in Spanish Harlem. Yeah. And they went to the pastor and they said, you know, we want to go ahead during the week and have a breakfast for our children as they go to school. We want to have lawyers to help people with their cases against uh, the, uh, the police. We want to have a, a food drive and a clothes drive. Um, and we have classes on raising consciousness mm -hmm. of, um, of the Latino community. And the preacher looked at them and says, ah, you bunch of commies, get out of here. Mm. So they came back next Sunday. They picked up the pastor and they threw him out. They occupied the church and they nailed a sign on the door that said the people's church. Mm. And then they did all those things. Mm -hmm. And the church was packed until the police came, arrested them, mm -hmm. and, and, and the whole thing happened again. So, so this idea of Joriendo, uh, you know, and again, like I said, I, I'm not inventing something new. This is mm -hmm. what our people have always done. Right, right. Um, this idea of Joriendo is you hold accountable those who have this rhetoric, rather it be the government of taking care of its citizens or the church mm -hmm. of taking care of its congregants. These organizations who are failing the people, you hold them accountable. Right. Let me give you the second example of how I see this working out. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of work with the immigration mm -hmm. um, 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 movement mm -hmm. down in, um, specifically into Tucson, uh, Nogales mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. um, when I was develop, I, I, when I was developing this, I spent a lot of time on the border, working with people like No More Deaf mm -hmm. and Samaritan yeah. and um, Borderlinks. And what I began to notice is that the way they do sanctuary is not civil disobedience, which is an African American um, ethical. Mm -hmm act um, that was um, 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 highlighted by Martin Luther King. Correct, yeah. uh, we have horrible laws and we're going to break those laws, right, civil right. disobedience. <clears throat> what the immigration groups down in the border do is they say we have good laws. Uh, we sign international treaties of providing humanitarian aid 
to those in distress. Mm -hmm. Our government is not following the treaties mm -hmm. and the laws that we sign. Right. So it's not civil disobe disobedience. Um, instead, it's civil um, initiative. Mm. That is, we're holding the government accountable to what they said they were going to do. Mm. So we're doing what the government's supposed to be doing, providing humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. um, and what our faith calls us to do, taking the hungry, the thirsty, right. the alien among us. Um, when I was in the border, and I was work, you know, learning from them and, and developing this ethics para joren, um, I shared it with, 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 with No More Death specifically. And, and they, according to somebody like John Fife, who mm -hmm. began the sanctuary movement back in the 1980s, what he said was that what I did was I gave him the words of what they've always been doing, mm. but didn't have the words by which to explain it. Right. So after, you know, I did my lectures down there and we talked about it, um, that, that, that Christmas, um, they went to Operation Streamline. Operation Streamline is where literally you, you bring the, the captured undocumented immigrant before the judge. Within like 30 seconds, the judge hears the case and convicts them and puts them in jail before they do get deported. It's, it's, it's an assembly line hmm. justice system for migrants. Wow. So during the op during Operation Streamline, that's the name, that's the name of, 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 of this court procedure, mm -hmm. As the judge was passing sentence every 30 seconds, yeah. um, a, a, um, a priest stood up, which you can't do in a court of law, mm -hmm. and started praying God for forgiveness for what we're doing to these individuals. Wow. Of course, the bailiff came, threw him out, and as soon as they did that, an imam stood up wow. and started asking Allah for forgiveness. Wow. And they came and took him out, then a... Um, uh, a rabbi stood up and started asking Yahweh for forgiveness. Mm. It took him out, Buddha stood up. <laughs> and, and, and what this did was we were screwing with mm. the judicial system. Yeah. You know. Another thing we did, which was a little more radical, is that the buses that bring the, uh, the undocumented immigrants to the courthouse, we timed it so that there was a car in front of the bus that stopped. Mm -hmm. And when the bus stopped, uh, a bunch of us, I wasn't there, but, but, but I say a bunch of us because I'm part of New right. No More Deaf and I get very possessive. <laughs> right. But we, 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 we circled the bus and chained ourselves to the wheels wow. using dragon sleeves. And dragon sleeves are these long sleeves full of concrete and all kinds of stuff so that they had to use chainsaws mm. uh, to, to try to cut it off and literally stop wow. Operation Streamlight, yeah. stop the court system in its track. Now you could say, yeah, but they all ended up getting deported. And of course they did. We didn't change the structures, but we raised the consciousness of mm. what's going on and, and held the government responsible for the injustice that it is committed to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is, this is really the most important lesson of this whole, of, of this whole long answer to your question. Mm. It's hopeless. We're not gonna get justice in a world incapable of justice. Hmm. But why then do we do this? If we do this because we think we're going to win, then something's wrong. 
because we're not going to win. If we do this because we think we're going to get an extra ruby in heaven, then something's wrong with our faith because that's not what faith is supposed to be. We do this. We struggle against the hopelessness of it all because we have no other choice. Mm. It is what defines our humanity mm. and it is what defines our faith. So to be human means to struggle for freedom. To be human is to struggle for freedom and justice. Because if we don't do that, then we have denied our very humanity. Ah, excellent. So that's why, because I mean, I have a lot of people say, well, if it's hopeless, why should I bother? To which I respond, yes, thank you for showing me your white male economic privilege. Because only, and it could be female too, it doesn't have to be a male, because only those with economic privilege mm. can mm. turn away and walk away and not bother. But I think of my parents yeah. who could never walk away because their entire life was a struggle to survive. So for those of us yeah. who come from those marginalized spaces, we can't walk away right. because... If we do, we die, and our children die. Right. How do different oppressed groups work together through hopelessness? Mm. A while back, I wrote a piece called um, Brown Lives When Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and the reason I wrote that is because as the Black Lives Matter, Matter movement was going on, I kept hearing a lot of white people say, well, all lives matter. Right. And they do. All lives do matter. I mean, I don't think no one's denying that. <laughs> right, right. And then I, 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 and I wanted to say, well, also brown lives are important because, yes, black lives are in danger mm -hmm. just by literally driving down any city mm -hmm. and being stopped by a cop. And likewise, every four days, five brown bodies perish in the desert mm. because of our immigration laws. Mm. So there's a silent genocide going on in both communities. Right. I refuse to say, well, brown lives matter also, because number one, I knew that my black brothers and sisters and siblings knew that already. Um, and I didn't want to take away from that movement. So how do I, as a Latino, stand in solidarity with my African-American siblings without trying to put the attention on me. Mm. Which means that I have a responsibility to be present, mm -hmm. presente, mm. when African Americans are struggling for their justice in Ferguson. Right. right. And African Americans need to be presente on the border right. Right. where we're struggling for our lives as well. Excellent. One of the things that the dominant white culture has done very successfully is to put us in cul-de-sacs so that we are living in our own walls right. and never realize we need to come together. Right. When I was living in Philadelphia, I never forget, I, I was reading the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer and there was this article that said, um, Latinos are now outnumbering African Americans. And, and I thought that was interesting because 
the article was not written, I don't believe, as a news item. I really think it was a way of telling the African-American communities, hey, watch out, Latinos are going to become more powerful than you. Hmm. You know, they're going to take over. They're going to become, you know, more, you know, more powerful and, you know, you know to, to, to keep us mm-hmm. separate and keep us fighting for right. the same uh, scraps that fall from the master's table. Right. I always find it fascinating when I go into a bookstore and you have, you know, um, a shelf where mm-hmm. you have all the black books and the uh, Hispanic books and the Asian American books and the Indian books. And, and, and we're fighting for that space on that shelf. Right. When there's a whole bookstore right. full of shelves right. that we have very little presence in. And the academy does the same thing. Right, right. You know, oh, we need to hire a person of color. So let's get the black scholar to, to go against the Asian scholar mm-hmm. and the Indian scholars. And, and we'll pick one of them so we right. could meet our quota of having a person of color. Right. Instead of thinking, you know, we could probably should just have a token white scholar once in a while <laughs> and have the rest of the department be of color because then it'll be more academically rigorous, in my opinion. Mm. Well, Dr. Delatore, thank you very much uh, for your brilliant insights. It's been uh, such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, and uh, we hope to continue this conversation in the future. Thank you for joining us. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.